Thank you. I want to add to what uh, Fred said, wherever Fred is. I don't know where there's Fred. Um, I certainly have nothing to do with the responsibilities of this conference other than my responsibility of speaking. It would be nice to have other young folks involved, I suppose, but um, when it comes to the music, I think a dimension would be missing if we didn't have uh, these folks here. It it's just fits. The first time I came and these men were playing and they had, I think Ed was on the banjo and I think your brother was here and I thought that just, it just fits. And uh, they do such a great job, so maybe we could have the younger ones too, but uh, I sure would miss it if these folks weren't here playing for us. So I just add my little two cents, which is about all it's worth. And I want to thank Fred. I want to thank him for upholding God's faithfulness. I want to tell you that I am often encouraged very much by those that I call the seasoned saints. Not the senior citizens, but the seasoned saints. Because as life goes on, I want to know that if the Lord spares me, and we live on, according to that psalm, borrowed time, that uh, salvation is, is such a real experience, that it gets better and better, that there's something to look forward to. It's not like some new toy you get or some new plaything that you have it for a little while and then it gets old. It gets better and better, richer and richer, fuller, deeper, and uh, gives you something to look forward to. And so the seasoned saints are an encouragement to all of us. They've fought the fight and fought battles and gone through the fire, and, and they've come, come through still, sometimes wounded and battle-scarred, but with that hope that we see in them. And that love for the Lord Jesus. So it gives us something to look forward to. It's a great thing about God's salvation. We want to turn this morning first to the book of Romans in the New Testament. And we're going to switch gears a bit this morning from what we would generally call the practical side of things to the prophetic side of things. And we're going to look at Israel's national role or what you might call the bigger picture. In Romans chapter 9, Paul begins to analyze what to him was a great problem. The problem had to do with God's plan, God's program for the nation of Israel. It was not just some armchair theological discussion that Paul was having. He will say in chapter 9 and verse 1, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have a great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, an uninterrupted pain. As he saw what was happening around him, the evidence was so powerful that his own kinsmen, according to the flesh, those who were Israelites by birth, those to whom the great privileges described in chapter 9 had been given and entrusted, they were not by and large coming to Christ. They were not recognizing Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. Not only were they not recognizing Him as Jesus as the Messiah and turning away from Him, but they were persecuting those 
who preached Christ and preached Jesus. And even Paul they hounded and sought to disrupt and persecute and even kill. It was a problem, as Paul saw, that their rejection meant not only that they had rejected Christ and His Messiahship, if you will, but the eternal consequences of what that meant for them. And it grieved him in his heart. And what of the promises given to Israel as a people? I say prophetic, but in a sense, you want to think that there's a practical side to it too. For if God could abandon that people and the covenant made with them and the promises given to them, what hope do we have who have trusted Christ that He'll keep His promise to us? What security would we have of our salvation if God is a God who breaks His covenant and promises? And so in that sense, there is a very practical side to it. The other side of the coin was that while Israel as a whole was rejecting the gospel, Gentiles by the hundreds and thousands were coming to Christ and recognizing Him as Jesus the Messiah and coming to believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Pure, raw, pagan, heathen people who had never even heard of the name of Jesus were turning from their idolatry, turning to God, and professing and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, often at great cost personally to them, their lives, their livelihoods, and their family. So this leads Paul, by the Spirit of God, to begin to analyze this and to examine the promises that are given. We haven't time to do a complete exposition of Romans chapter 9, but one thing that will come out as we sort of do a little bit of a scan of it is that Paul is going to bring out to us in Romans chapter 9 the role of Israel as a nation, the national role of Israel. It is national roles here that are emphasized more than individual roles. That's very important in the discussion of Romans chapter 9 or in the understanding of it because it is one of the chapters that can cause great difficulty to folks. For instance, when you drop down to verse 11 and you read that the children of Isaac and Rebekah being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, it was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. We always have to be careful, don't we, of of doing what has, I guess, termed in the proper term, not exegesis, but eisegesis, where we read into the Scripture things. We want to be careful to notice what was said, who it was said to, and when it was said. And many folks have been troubled by the verse we find in verse 13, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. But never think for a moment that 
what you read in verse 12 is the same as what's said in verse 13. It was never said to the mother when the children were in the womb, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. It was said when the children were still in the womb, the elder shall serve the younger. And in the closing book of our what we call our Old Testament, the book of Malachi, the statement is made, Esau have I hated and Jacob have I loved. But if you read the book of Malachi, as we've noted in passing reference, that Esau at that point is a nation, the nation of Edom. Edom, that nation, have I hated. Jacob, Israel, that nation, have I loved. And it gives us again the setting and context of Romans chapter 9, that what is brought out here is not so much the individuals as their role is, but the national role, even that God would use these individuals and to develop. Well, we won't have time again to go into that in its entirety, except to say that um, you will find here in Romans chapter 9 that we have scriptural support, even in verse 12, for looking at Esau and Jacob as individuals at a different level. We, got, we have scriptural support to look at them as they present to us in Scripture national truths. And remember, before Jacob, there was no Israel. He's the one whose name ultimately is changed to Israel. And so as we examine the life of Jacob, we are, in a sense, examining the history of Israel. Remember, as we said, that his life could be divided into three sections. The time when he was in the land, the time when he was out of the land in disobedience, being chastened, and the time when ultimately he was brought back again. Let's think for a moment about Israel. How did they begin? Jacob did not wake up one day and say, you know, I, I'm really tired of this name. I don't like its connotations. I don't want to be known as the con man, the cheat, the swindler. I think I'll change my name to Prince with God. Didn't happen like that, did it? It was a supernatural revelation. It was a meeting of God in a sense face to face. The very name, the existence of Israel, the name that identifies them throughout the rest of Scripture was a name that was given by supernatural revelation. Their very beginning began with supernatural revelation from God. The ladder, the experience of Jacob and, and that ladder and the house of God and that whole thing, it was supernatural from its very beginning. Supernatural in its continuance. Think for a moment, if you will, of the wonder of the preservation of that nation. You know, we said, at least I said, and I hope you were listening, I'm sure you were, in passing, that if you think life is tough for you, and it may well be, by the way, some of you know that I do enjoy occasionally hunting, 
And uh, one of the things I learned from hunting, I like to hunt with a bow and arrow. And I learned long ago from the time I was a teenager that there are different quivers. I've got quivers that hold four arrows. I've got quivers that hold 20 arrows. I've got quivers that hold six arrows. So when the Scripture says about children, happy is the man whose quiver is full, I came to the realization a long time ago that not everybody has the same size of a quiver. And sometimes that's to be thankful for. Can you imagine a house with 12 boys of four different mothers? And you got to keep them all together and keep them from killing one another, which they almost didn't do because one of them they wanted to kill. If that was a job, imagine what it would be eventually when those 12 boys developed into 12 tribes that ultimately developed into a nation of millions. What would hold them together? And the sad story of Scripture is they didn't always hold together. And the tribes turned and fought one another and divided. And yet, the miracle of the preservation of that nation. You see, God had a, I don't want to say God had a problem in that sense, but there was a problem. It's one thing to have to preserve one son, like an Isaac or a Jacob. It's another thing to take those twelve and weld them into one unit. And yet we read, when we turn to that wonderful book of Numbers in chapter 1, these words. All that are 20 years old and upward that are able to go forth to war in Israel. Numbers chapter 1. And for my benefit, I put over in the margin of my Bible... For instance, at verse 21 of Numbers 1, 46,500. Verse 23, 59,300. And I do like that just to help me read it. But the point is that when you get to the bottom of that numbering, which is only those that are male, 20 years old and upward, able to go forth to war, 603,550. You say, what's so unique about that? Well, you read that verse in the book of Acts that says some 70 souls went down into Egypt. (laughs) Some 70 souls went down into Egypt. And God had promised before through Abraham back in the book of Genesis, way back there, that one day God is going to visit these people. It's going to be hundreds of years. They're going to go down into the land of Egypt. And they're going to come out. And Abraham, your descendants are going to be like the sands of the sea, like the stars of the heaven, like the dust of the earth. So great will they be in multitude. And as they begin to come out of the land of Egypt, as the numbering takes place in the book of Numbers, in spite of the persecution and the Pharaoh and the Nile and the slaughter of the male children, they come up now as a great people. God was fulfilling His promise. They saw that they were part of what was happening. And though it was a long time coming, God was beginning to fulfill His promise. It was a portent of things that were yet even to come. 
And remember when Balaam looked down and sought to curse that people. And he looked down at those tents and he had to make the declaration, He has not beheld iniquity in Jacob. How goodly are thy tents! As he saw the arrangement, the divine order, and it caused that false prophet, forced by the revelation that God gave him of that divine order to proclaim, he has not beheld iniquity in Jacob. What a wonder, the preservation of that nation. And yet, there's a bigger picture, isn't there? Turn with me to a couple of the prophets, if you will, to the book of Amos first, in the Minor Prophets, in chapter 3. Amos chapter 3. Amos chapter 3 and verse 1. Hear this word that the Lord hath spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. What an amazing statement. Of all the families of the earth, you only have I known. And because I know you and because there's this relationship, I will punish you for all your iniquities. And what Israel as a nation has suffered and that people have suffered over the years is because of the unique relationship that God has with them. It is not an evidence against the truth of Israel. It is an evidence of what God is ultimately going to do with that nation. Let's look back into the major prophets, as we call them, the book of Jeremiah, in chapter 31. Jeremiah, in chapter 31. Israel's rejection and Israel's blindness is not final. In, in Jeremiah 31 and 35, Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Now you ought to mark that verse in your thinking, if not in your Bible. If those ordinances, if the sun refuses to shine, if the moon ceases to be, if the stars at night discontinue their light, then Israel will cease to be a nation before me forever. That is a very powerful testimony from the Lord Himself as to what will happen with that nation. While we're in the Old Testament, if we could just turn for a moment to the book of Psalms, 
in one of the well-known psalms, well-known because we often sing it, don't we? I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever, Psalm 89. But drop down, if you will, to what we have in verse 35 of Psalm 89. Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever as the moon and as a faithful witness in heaven. And then the discussion of what seems like to David the casting off, which is only temporary. Now bear with me for one moment as we turn to the New Testament again, to the book of Romans in chapter 9, I'm sorry, in chapter 11. Romans chapter 11 and verse 15. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? The casting away of Israel results in the reconciling of the world. What shall the receiving of them be? Follow this in your Bible, if you will. Look in chapter 11 and verse 11. Have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. And Noah did such a, uh, the Lord gave him such help last night in bringing out the truth. He, as a, an Israeli by birth, as a Jewish man by heritage, and yet now a believer in Jesus the Messiah the Christ of God, the Son of God. And he did such a wonderful personal testimony. I'd recommend you get it by way of MP3 if you have, haven't heard it or if you know other folks of how this, these passages here, how they fit personally in his life. He saw it. How the Gentiles who'd come to own Christ provoked him and caused him to want to even antagonistically Go to that Bible study and how God opened his heart to see the true Christ, the anointed, the Messiah of Israel. But notice, if you will, verse 11, their fall, verse 12, the fall of them, verse 12, the diminishing of them, which has resulted in the riches of the Gentiles, verse 15, the casting away of them, all four of those things, how consistently they bring that truth, that truth forth. But if there has been their fall, their diminishing, and their casting away, the Scripture says, there will be their restoration. And I stand before you here this morning, based upon the truth of what God's Word says, based upon the ordinances of the sky and the sun and the moon and the stars, and the covenant-keeping God, that one day Israel shall be restored and the promises of God that have lined dormant for all of those years will be realized. And the nation shall be born, as it says, in a day. Now, I want to say, I want to hasten to say, it's a very difficult line we sometimes uh, walk in the sense of our thinking. Because what 
Jewish people do now, and some of the behavior and actions that we see of the nation is not excused and will be dealt with. And they don't just have carte blanche to do whatever they want to do. And yet, the promises of God to them as a people stand true. And there's a great uh, a national birth that will take place according to what the Scripture says. And it'll happen this way in verse 25 of chapter 11. I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness or hardness in part, in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And if you can take the words of the Lord Jesus, and you can, His very words, in Matthew chapter 19, the Lord Jesus Himself stood on this planet and said this, Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of His glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. God is not done with Israel as a people. How will it happen? I completely get off guard here. I think I'm supposed to end in a couple of minutes. Am I not? Something like that? Okay, I will. Try to. It's a long story. It takes place in the Bible from about Genesis chapter 37 to chapter 50. Have it the time to go into it in two or three minutes or even a whole message almost. Some of you will know the story. I apologize if you don't. It's the story, as I mentioned at the very outset, not just of Joseph, but of Jacob. And it's ultimately the story of how Jacob is brought to Joseph. It really is, in the end of the book of Genesis, probably more about Jacob than it is about Joseph. The story of Joseph, as you'll find, I think it's in chapter 37, seven times mentioned, the pit, is the story about a man who was given up for dead, who went down and had an experience in a pit, who was raised up out of that pit and exalted in that day in one of the greatest dynasties that Egypt has ever known to be Lord of all. What a story. You ever heard a story like that? Where a man would be given up for dead and placed in a pit and one day be raised and exalted to a place of supremacy. What a story God established. You remember the brothers who had done this and caused this to happen and all of how that story went. Who one day would stand before Joseph not knowing who he was, and Joseph would make himself known to his brethren. And when they told him about the father, and he knew about Jacob, he loaded wagons. Jacob didn't believe it. But they loaded wagons with all sorts of stuff. And the Scripture says, when Jacob saw those wagons, when he knew there was evidence that that son who had been given up for dead 
was now alive. Jacob believed when he saw the evidence of the man who was once dead that he was now alive. And he went down to see Joseph who made himself known to his brethren. And I want to say this as we get ready to close my portion of this morning's message. It was through a time of severe economic disaster of the known world of that day that suffered an economic recession, depression, and famine such as the world had never seen. It wasn't through the times of prosperity that Jacob and the tribes were brought to bow before Joseph. It was through that time that was so great, Jacob was troubled like he never had been before. And the Scripture tells us it will be through that time that the Word of God calls the time of Jacob's trouble and tribulation that ultimately Israel as a people will come to say. I believe it is then that they will look on Him whom they have pierced. And the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, at a level that has yet to be fulfilled, will be their confession and prayer. When Israel looks at Him and says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes we are healed. It's a great national picture, and God has preserved it for us, not only in doctrinal form of the New Testament and Old, but in the accurate recording of the history of the lives of these individuals. It just blows my mind that God could put this history down in such a way, not only uh, to support the doctrine of the New Testament and not contradict it, to contradict it but to, to help us to see it in a pictorial kind of way. Now, you may be here this morning, and some of this may be new to you, or you may not understand much of what I've said, and that's understandable. But I do want you to understand this. When we talk about a bigger picture, there is a bigger picture here. Because we know one whose name is Jesus Christ. And he went down, actually, it wasn't like Joseph. He didn't, they didn't just think he was dead. He died. The Scripture says, the Gospel is, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that He was buried, but He rose again the third day. And unless you know Him as your Savior, you have no hope of heaven and no hope that your sins can ever be forgiven. But we commend Him to you today. There are those of us who are here, many of us who have bowed the knee and the heart and owned Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And we look forward to seeing Him again. And seeing Him in that place of exaltation that one day, when every eye shall see Him. See, the Scripture says, Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You'll either be forced to do it one day, or you can do it willingly now. And if you haven't done so, today can be that day. Thank you.